Now, um, we're in a study of the book of Jonah. You follow as I read uh, this portion of that book. Um, I'll begin reading at verse 7, and we'll go to verse 16. So you follow as I read. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and at what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then... The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word endures forever. Do you see my title, Deep Six? Have you ever heard that term, Deep Six? You know what it means? It's a, it's a, it's a nautical term that has to do with discarding something or throwing something overboard. (laughs) At this uh, point in the story of the book of Jonah, Jonah is uh, on trial. Um, And he is is discovered by the casting of uh, lots. We don't have time to to talk about that lot casting thing. We found it several times in the scriptures, but it's somewhat akin to our drawing of straws. But in this whole process of finding out who the guilty party is, Jonah never says a word. He's silent, um, unwilling to confess. He's still hard, but um, he has been found out. Martin Luther uh, once said that at this, uh, about this section of the book of Jonah, he said, not only is the ship, but the whole world becomes too small for Jonah to hide in. He's been found. He's been caught in the midst of his defiance before God. And all eyes on the ship now focus on this strange passenger. Who are you? So alarmed are these sailors that they, um, you notice um, in, in verse uh, 8, they start asking him questions. And it's, uh, I, I think that the, the narrative is designed to give you the impression I mean, I can, I, I, I can just see it in my mind's eye. This, they're in this, on this boat, uh, and they're being blown about by the, by the sea, and they're pelting rain, and they're all drenched, and, and there's this one little mystery man in the center, and they're all firing questions at him from all directions. Who are you? Where'd you come from? What occupation did you know? Whose people are you? Um, because now they know who the guilty party is, 
And now they're looking for some more um, helpful information. And in his reply, I want you to notice, um, there's not one hint of remorse. He doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry I did this. I repent. Would you guys please forgive me? He doesn't do any evangelism. Um, He does tell them what he's done because he's been caught. But his reply to all of their questions does nothing but worsen and aggravate the, 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 the nature of his sin. He says, the God that's behind this storm, I know that God. That's my God. I'm a Hebrew, you see. And um, that God has done many wonderful things for me and my people. And I've sinned against him. You know, it is one thing for non-Christians. It's almost predictable that non-Christians would sin. Um, But us? Um, Has God ever been unfaithful to us? You see, we're sinning against light. We're sinning against knowledge. And even for these pagan sailors, they're that's a a marvel why would you do that fleeing from god's presence that's stupid to even pagan sailors why have you done this you know that's a question that i um i would often like to ask of myself and of others whose stories i hear Why did we do that? Is it because God has been unfaithful to us? Is it because somehow God let us down? How could you do this? Um, Which brings us to verse 10. And I have to tell you before I comment on verse 10. Verse 10, in relationship to the rest of the chapter, is one of the reasons that I've come back to Jonah a second time. You know, I told you I preached through Jonah 20 years ago. But here's one of the reasons, probably the main reason, that I wanted to preach through it again. Because there's a theme that I don't know that I have picked up in the past. There is a theme, particularly in Jonah 1, that I I don't want you to miss. And it really starts in verse 5. But that was not in our text this morning, but it was last week. But take a look at verse 5. That'll introduce the theme. It says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. In the midst of this storm, the the mariners are afraid. Um, Then you come to verse 10. And once Jonah has told them who he is, I want you to notice in verse 10 that the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? By the way, that theme is going to be repeated one more time in verse 16. We'll get to it in a minute. But did you notice earlier in the chapter, the mariners are afraid. They're afraid of this. They're not afraid of their gods. They're afraid of the storm. But once they hear about this God uh, who is the, the God of sea and dry land, 
Now they're not just afraid. They're exceedingly afraid. No, they are, um, they're, they're, the Hebrew is, they feared a great fear. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, do you understand what it is that represents or explains this increase in the fear? The situation was bad and I'm afraid. But now, I'm not just afraid. I am fearing a great fear. I'm exceedingly afraid. Why? What explains that increase in their fear? Well, ladies and gentlemen, storms will frighten you. But meeting up with this God will petrify you. They have experienced or are experiencing a bit of what what is called cosmic claustrophobia because this God, much unlike our gods, because our gods don't have power like this, this God is freakish. In verse 11, the sailors admit that we don't have any answers. We don't know what to do. So they turn to Jonah, of all things, the one who is the, who is the cause of all of this trouble. He's the thorn in their side. They've got no um, uh, family ties to this guy. Get rid of him. Deep six. And yet they don't. Why? Again, they are dealing now with a God that is a brand new thing for them. Uh, they, they know about gods, but they don't know about this God. Our gods can't do what, what we're experiencing right now. So we best not mess with this God. We best not trifle with him Every step we take, every decision that we make, every move that we make, we better make sure it's the right one because we don't want to mess with this God. But we don't think like that. We, um, we're all too willing to trifle with sin, to, to toy with temptation, and even provoke this God. Verse 12 is another one of the reasons that I wanted to do Jonah a second time. Um, because in my previous treatment of the book, I pointed, at, I pointed you to verse 12 and I said something like this. I said, um, finally, there's something nice to say about Jonah the prophet. Finally, we see him with a, an altruistic bone in his body. Finally, we see him saying, listen, just, just, I'll die for y'all. Just throw me overboard. But as I've looked at this again, I, I, I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, in fact, knowing what I know about Jonah up to this point in the story, I would say that this is not altruism at all. This is defiance. I would rather die than see those Gentiles saved. I, 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 would, I would rather die than obey this God. This is nothing more in verse 12. It's nothing more than a sailor-assisted suicide. 
He's not being like Jesus in verse 12. John is saying, I would rather die than obey. And Jesus says, I would rather obey than live. And in response, these pagans, if you want to see some altruism, it's in the the sailors. They say, well, um, okay, we'll just try harder to row to dry land. And though Jonah will do nothing to save them, they try real hard to save him. But uh, their efforts are not going to thwart God in his dealings with his defiant prophet. Which brings us um, to what I think is a description, a, um, a story about conversion. Um, I, let me put it this way. I want to suggest to you that these pagan sailors you will one day meet in heaven. And I base that on several things that I see in the text, and let me show you those. I'm saying that what you have here is a description of the conversion of those sailors. In a very brief time, they've learned a great deal about Yahweh. First of all, they they had felt his anger over disobedience. It wasn't particularly theirs. It was Jonah's disobedience. But they did see that this God hates sin. And they are going to become executioners of his wrath over sin with Jonah. Their response is in verse 14 is just wonderful. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They are the ones that want to yield to Yahweh. They know that he's going to do whatever he uh, intends to do, um, but not Jonah. Jonah's not the one that says, uh, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. No, no, no. That was pagan sailors that said that. And then notice they used the term Yahweh. Guys, if you don't know this, when you see the word Lord in the text, and it's in all caps, not capitalized, but all caps as you see here, that's a translation of the Hebrew tetragrammaton Yahweh. They are now using the covenantal name of, of God, Yahweh. Where'd they learn that? They probably got it from Jonah. And they're praying now to the right God. But all of that takes place before the deep six. They pick him up, they throw him overboard, and look at verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. They throw Jonah overboard, and then they step back and watch as the storm stops. Um, Verse 16 then tells us, now they feared the Lord exceedingly. They feared. They feared. They had a great fear. And then they feared exceedingly. That's the theme, ladies and gentlemen, that I'm saying it's in chapter 1. It has to do with men's view of God. I'm in a storm, I'm afraid. But now I see this God, oh, I'm really afraid. Now I've come to know this God and I'm exceedingly afraid. Afraid. 
Oh, that God would return fear of himself to the church. We wouldn't be so quick and so ready to toy with sin if God would return fear of himself as you see in some recently converted pagan sailors. There's a submissive fear. The object of their worship has now changed. Paul said about the Thessalonians, he said, you turned to God from idols. So did they. They turned to God from their idols. And their response is, they exceedingly fear him. And then notice, they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Where did they get that idea? I don't know, but it was the right one. And then they make vows. They, they make their vows after their deliverance, not before. Folks, that's downright gospel-esque. Do you see it? You don't make God promises to get him to love you. You make God promises because he does love you. It's as if they're saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe that a God like this exists who would forgive somebody as guilty as I. I will make to him vows. And then they know even something a little bit, a little bit of something about one man being sacrificed for the many. Folks, what I'm saying is that this is a pretty good summary of conversion Feared, offered, vowed. Feared, offered, vowed. Do you see any of that in what you point to when you call yourself converted? Do you see that in some ways? This guy, Jonah, who wanted to avoid seeing pagans converted, God converted them without him. Even in Jonah's sin, God is glorified. And when those sailors got back, got back home, back to port, boy, did they have a story to tell their friends and family. They had a story to tell them about a God whose hatred of sin brought them to repentance. That's the same story we have to tell about a God who has a hatred of sin and understanding that it has brought us to repentance and faith. They got to tell their friends and family about a God who rules over the sea and dry land. You know, it's, there's another set of men who could tell a similar story. Their, their story is in the New Testament. It's found a couple of places, but it's also, it's also, it's one of the places it's found is Mark 4. It's about these 12 guys. They were in a boat, and they were crossing this Sea of Galilee, and uh, as they were crossing, a big storm arose, and there was this other friend of theirs that was in the front of the boat, 
and he was asleep, sound asleep. I mean, kind of like Jonah, you know, just sound asleep. And the, the winds were raging and they were about to die. And, and it says in the, in the telling of this story in Mark chapter 4 that these, that these guys in that boat, they were really afraid. And then they finally get the guy in the front of the boat and they wake him up and they come and he comes to the middle of the boat and he, and he looks at the storm and he says, peace, be still. And all the winds stop and the waves settle down. And you know what that text says about them? They greatly feared. The same theme that you find in Jonah 1 found in the, the, the story of Mark 4. Oh, storms will scare you. Yeah, yeah, oh, really? Yeah, they'll really scare me. But they won't scare me. They won't, they won't set off fear in me like meeting up with this God. Have you met that God? I want to tell you a story it's um, the story that was, it's contained in a book, one of R.C. Sproul's earliest books. I bet you don't have this book. You might could find it on Amazon, but it was one of his earliest. It's entitled, A Psychology of Atheism. And in the book, he tells a story about a character in a John Steinbeck novel. Um, maybe you've read of Mice and Men by Steinbeck. Well, in that novel, there is a character whose name is Lenny. And Lenny is this gargantuan of a man. He's, a, he's, he's huge physically. Um, but he is... Uh, the only thing that, um, that is bigger than his size is his simplicity and his, um, his emotional life. He, is, he has the mind and emotions of a child. Um, he, he's big guy, but... Um, very infantile in his thinking and his emotions. And Lenny has an idiosyncrasy, and his idiosyncrasy is that he loves to display love and take care of small little furry animals like rabbits and, and mice and puppies. And so he will catch these little creatures and in, and, and in his hands, and he will stroke their fur. And, and the longer that he does it, the more afraid the little creatures get. And Lenny will hold on to the creatures even tighter so that he can display his love to them better. And the longer, the more they squirm, the tighter he holds them until he finally squeezes them to death. It's a peculiar quirk of... Lenny's personality, but it uh, is no real big deal. It's just nothing more than a tolerable annoyance to his guardian, whose name is George. Uh, no great harm is done by Lenny until he falls in love, not with a rabbit, but with a woman. And um, it's another, it's the wife of one of the other migrant workers like Lenny, and she tries to seduce Lenny, and she flashes her long hair at him and invites him to stroke her hair. But when he does, just like the animals, the more he does, the more frightened she becomes. And then he becomes more aggressive, and then he grabs her to hold on to her, and now she's terrified. And she's pulling away and, and, uh, from, from Lenny, 
and even hurling these cruel insults at Lenny. Lenny is bewildered and, and is simply trying to show his deep affection for her. And then John Steinbeck writes this. I'm quoting. She struggled violently under his hands. Her feet battered on the hay as she writhed to be free. And from under Lenny's hand came a muffled screaming. Lenny began to cry with fright. Oh, please don't do none of that, he begged. George, George going to say I've done a bad thing. He ain't going to let me tend no rabbits. He moved his hand just a little and her hoarse cry came out again. And then Lenny grew angry. Now don't, he said. I don't want you to yell. <coughs> Pardon me. You, you're going to get me in trouble just like George says you will. Now don't you do that. And she continued to struggle. And her eyes were wild with terror. He shook her then. And he was angry with her. Don't you go yelling, he said. And he shook her, and her body flopped like a fish. And then she was still, for Lenny had broken her neck. So with that incident, Lenny's idiosyncrasies were now no longer tolerable. And so George whisks Lenny away with a posse in close pursuit Lenny had no real understanding of the enormity of his crime in his innocence he babbled repeatedly like a child I've done a bad thing I've done a bad thing and finally with the, the posse closing in on them George stops and he points Lenny over the river to an imaginary farm that is filled with little furry creatures um, that Lenny can, can pet for hours. And Lenny stands there with this, with this conjured vision, thinking about the, the untold hours of delight he will have in taking care of and loving these little furry creatures. And while he stands there, George calmly takes his pistol from his holster and blows Lenny's brains out. And then when the posse arrives, one of the men in the posse says to George, never you mind. A guy got to sometimes. Lenny was a freak. It was his abnormal affection that made him intolerable. His love was the kind that was both tender and brutal. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's my point. I'm not trying to tell you to say, or I'm, not try, I, I don't, I'm not trying to get you to think that God is like Lenny. That's not what I'm doing. That's not my point. What I am pointing to is that, that God has an abnormal love too. And that abnormal love is on display in Christ and him crucified. And men don't know how to deal with that. They're not comfortable with that kind of love. Oh, they understand the gods of this world. Oh, yes. They, 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 but but, 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 but a, a love like this? A, a God like this? Who, who, 
can, can I say this, is, is freakish in his love for, for people who are so undeserving. Think about it, ladies and gentlemen, that God is going to provide the very righteousness that he demands, and he provides that righteousness by the, by the crucifixion of his own beloved son, Have you met that God? We sing a hymn, and there's a line in it that says, What wondrous love is this? Yeah. What wondrous love. Have you met that God? The one that sets your heart to trembling. You know, folks, the the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, he writes to the Corinthians in chapter 2, and he says, I came to you in fear and in much trembling. Well, where is that going? David says in Psalm 119, my flesh trembles before you. Paul writes to the Philippian church and says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Where is that? Where did that go? Has this God, have you met this God before whom pagan sailors tremble a great trembling? Do you know anything about that? Or have you been so intoxicated with false claims about God? Like like God having unconditional love. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not true. Do you know what faith is? It's a condition. Do you know what repentance is? It's a condition. And we are so intoxicated with, with foolishnesses about who God is and what he's done. That the idea of working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, these pagan sailors, once they got a glimpse of who God was, they feared the Lord exceedingly. Do you? Do we, the one who arrests us in our own pursuit of sin, the one who evokes fear and is to be obeyed, the one to whom we make vows, and we do our dead level best to keep them, Have you met that God? Those sailors had. And they await you in heaven if this God is your God. And this God is is reconciled to sinful man through the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
And it is that Jesus Christ who says this in Luke 12. Oh, don't worry about that, but I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who, after you're dead, can cast your soul into an eternity of separation. Yes, fear him. What the sailors teach us, Jesus teaches us that this God, when he enters into a loving relationship with sinful, undeserving sinful folk like me, he evokes righteous fear. Our Father, would you, uh, would you remind us <clears throat> that you are, the, you are the God of the sea and the dry land, that you are the God whose, whose will will not be thwarted by <clears throat> our defiances, and that you will save with us or without us. Would you... Um, would you, O oh God, restore fear of yourself to the church? Might we stop toying with you and come to the place where we, along with these men, offer sacrifices and make vows and fear the Lord exceedingly. Father, thank you for a love that will not let us go a love on display in the sufferings of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That love, an abnormal love, a love that we do not know how to cope with. Might it change us little by little into the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray, of course, in his name.